Presidential historian Doug Brinkley has often talked with our C-SPAN viewers and listeners for the past 30 years. Professor Brinkley was educated at Ohio State and Georgetown and has taught at Hofstra, Tulane, and the University of New Orleans. In addition to that, he has spent his past 17 years at Rice University in Houston. Author of some 20 books focusing on subjects from Secretary of State Dean Acheson to Jimmy Carter, Theodore Roosevelt, Gerald Ford, FDR, and the Magic Bus. Recently, we invited him to talk with us for a long time, six hours. That complete conversation is available on the C-SPAN podcast site. But for the moment, here's a much briefer excerpt. I wrote down where you said one time the biggest event in your life was hearing like a rolling stone and getting in the car and driving a 1965 tune by Bob Dylan. Why? Oh, uh, it's a, if you cut me open like a tree, I have a lot of Bob Dylan rings in me. I discovered him when I was young, like a lot of people, and he just spoke to me. Uh, Why? What did he say to you? Like a Rolling Stone was about moving for me. If other people see it about a relationship, you take what you want, but you know, it, it meant to me um, taking off and going and doing things uh, like a song Tangled Up in Blue, getting out there. It was part of a tradition, but just Dylan's lyrics were to me just so phenomenal, but like I, once in a while, maybe maybe a lot of people do this. I think about if, at my funeral, what song would I pick? And um, for me, it would be like Rolling Stone or Mr. Tambourine Man. The, the Rolling Stone magazine. Where did it get its title? Well, that comes out of this. You know, the original Rolling Stone, Muddy Waters, made you know a, a song about it, and then. In 1967, Rolling Stone got created, and the Rolling Stone rock band was big. Dylan had just had a number one hit with Like a Rolling Stone, and Jan Wenner, of, um, the founder of Rolling Stone, uh, appropriated it for the magazine that was supposed to be covering music uh, exclusively, but quickly turned into a vehicle for long-form um, you know, nonfiction and fiction. How many times have you interviewed or been around Bob Dylan? I've seen him. So my, you know, I, I saw him once um, um, a long time ago and had a little bit of a conversation. And then I got to do a Rolling Stone cover story on him. And I went to Amsterdam and interviewed him for a couple of nights there and then also Paris on that trip. And we went on a little bit like you're going on. Uh, he said to me, I had like a, I knew better that he was suspicious of technology, so I just brought a um, Radio Shack tape recorder with the old cassettes, and uh, and we talked. And for our, I had a one-hour interview set up with him, and I didn't even get out of Duluth, Minnesota, where he grew <laughs> up in Hibbing and Duluth, and then there was the knock on the door to pull the talent, like interview over. And Bob said, it was just a minute to them. And he said, you, he said, you're a gambling man. You did your whole hour. You think them in New York want to hear about Duluth? You spent your whole time uh, 
on Duluth and you ate up your whole hour. And, he, and, and then he said, uh, you're going for a long-term relationship with me. He goes, I like that. You didn't go for the kill. A lot of people just come right in with the, and you're like going for a long-form way. And he said, so I like talking. So then he blew the person off and we just continued talking. How long? Oh, hours and hours. Went back to see him at the Heineken Arena, went back, invited me back the next night, hours and hours. We, we got along. And and um, when I he walked me out to a taxi um, to the street to say goodnight one night, and I said, Bob, this is really nice. I know you don't do this. He said, Oh, well, you're you you're, you are a historian, and you have to talk about history, and you know. And he said, You passed my test, and I said, What's the test? And he said, You never said I heard. And then I got in a cab, and I was thinking, what is he talking about? And I realized that I didn't say, now I heard that you're doing this. I simply said, ask questions without I heard. I just do that naturally. So, uh, But uh, Columbia Records, he liked the profile. Columbia Records liked it. And subsequently, we stayed in touch um, and talk. And I meet him at places um, to chat. And I someday hope to write on him. At least I'm collecting tapes and things. But we, he opened a Bob Dylan Center, sold all of his archive to Tulsa. That's supposed to open in the spring of 2022. University of? No, it's part of a man there who's one of the a billionaire named George Kaiser. And they built a Woody Guthrie Museum in Tulsa. And next to it's going to be the Bob Dylan Center. Who, who was Woody Guthrie? And Woody Guthrie, the famous folk singer who wrote This Land is Your Land, a kind of wandering, um, you know, troubadour of uh, the, and sold, sang Dust Bowl ballads about the horrors of when the Dust Bowl hit Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, and elsewhere. And there's a lot of, you know, Dylan, one of his first original compositions was called Song for Woody. So he was a kind of an era, you know, and he actually left Minnesota, Bob Dylan, when he was young and went to the hospital to sit and play to Woody Guthrie, Woody's own songs. What about Bob Dylan is so special? Um, He does things his way. It's the triumph of the individual over the forces of society. He, He sings with the voice how he wants to. He writes what he wants to. He's unswayed most of the time by what's supposed to be in or what's supposed to be out. Liberals think he's a liberal. Yeah, he's, he, Bob's not really political. I mean, he has a conservative side to him. You know, his father was quite conservative. Uh, his father had to work in um, electronic shops and in the mines up there in the Mesabi Range. And what I got to see about Bob Dylan is that he has a lot of kids, and they're all great. And they all have jobs, yeah. And they're all like, you know, went to NYU or went to um, McAllister in Minnesota, and, you know, just a normal, wonderful family. And I realized that that's part of it. And talk about the F word. He doesn't like uh, when people in the band use it. You can get kicked out. His if son, you, Jacob? If you... If you um, if you swear, yeah, Jacobs was a band called the Wallflowers, and he's kept the music. And but he does, he did that documentary. He did on Laurel Canyon. <laughs> on Laurel Canyon, and the, you're hard pressed to see Bob Dylan in him. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's very, but, as a matter of fact, he this is self uh, attention here, but he he used our style. He didn't in, he didn't inject himself at all into the interview. He just asked the question. And he's a very very nice. You know that's what I'm saying. These are nice people. His kids and uh, and so he lives out in Malibu and he's opening both a center in Tulsa and an arts center in Nashville, uh, where he's going to have his he has his own whiskey brand called Heaven's Gate. And the son or Bob? Bob. And it's going to be the distillery in Nashville connected to a brand new art center um, that they're going to be doing in the next few years. How much money does he make? I don't know. Uh, but he can make as much as he wants in the sense within limits. But he does all sorts of side projects. He builds gates, metal gates that he welds. He has a welding studio and takes scrap metal and welds these kind of gates, particularly using farm implements, old style things he finds at, uh, you know, along the road at, you know, garages and thrift shops and all, like metal parts that he welds together. They're interesting. Do you and like he, his he early paints. music or the latest album he did with uh, the John Kennedy assassination? Well, I like his, cla- you know, classic um uh, Earlier stuff, but yeah, I like the I like Rough and Rowdy Ways was the most recent, and I think there's a song in that that Key West that really hit me hard. It was about a figure getting um, growing up in age and driving down to Key West and contemplating their life. And I see a lot of people along the Gulf Coast um, of Florida, Texas, and all that are. They're worn. Their lives are over. They're retired. They have diabetes. They have health problems, and they're thinking about their whole lives. And he does that well in Key West, but he's kind of proud of himself. And he has a line in there, Brian, that I love on that song where Dylan says, "I'm, you know, like a, my feet are firmly planted on the, the ground, with my right my right arm up, but my thumbs down." Like, my days are winding, and he's going to be 80, and he's thinking, you know, so I, I, I did it. I know who I am. My feet are p- planted. My right arm's up in victory. What a career I have. But my thumb's down. My days are numbered. And he, he says things like that that make you think, and um, very few artists just draw, can write those sorts of lyrics. And in that particular song, he deals with William McKinley's assassination using the language of... Um, of how McKinley was killed in the song to begin it, and he's starting to deal with uh, the old radio wires from Navy ships uh, where radio stations used to come out of places like Luxembourg and uh, and uh, Budapest, and he does a lot of things. He's a, a great musicologist and an incredible historian of America. Talking to Bob Dylan about American history, he knows a lot. The best thing I ever heard about Bob Dylan <clears throat> was his XM serious radio show, Radio Theme Time, I think yeah. it was called. I don't know you can find it. I don't know that you can buy it. I know uh, they were made in CDs. You can acquire can them, you? but they're, you know, um, I think it'll end up resurfacing on one of these, you know, I'm always waiting to see if there'll be a Bob Dylan channel. Um, you know, there's Jimmy Buffett has one and Bruce Springsteen Elvis. and Elvis and, uh, and, Perhaps it will, because he's written so many songs that other people have done. Um, and but the thing that I like about him now is he just doesn't quit. He's no matter his age, he's trying to be creative and uh, and not dialing it. I mean, he works, but he's always working. What do you see up close that we can't hear or see on, on television of Bob Dylan? His <clears throat> eyes, these amazing 
amazing blue eyes. And he has a story when, you know, Frank Sinatra retired. Um, Frank and Bob became good friends. And he wanted to do his last song and his farewell. Frank Sinatra did a Bob Dylan song called Restless Farewell. So it'd be like you at C-SPAN all these years, but then you have to not do, you know, thing. And it's a farewell, everybody, but it's restless. You kind of still want to be there, but you know you've got to do this move, you know. And, and he just captures it. Dylan and Sinatra noticed it. And Frank said to Bob, uh, you know, Bob, our eyes, they both have the same. He goes, this is the, we're, we're going to go to heaven. When you have eyes like ours, where that's the, that's the blue of the skies. We're going up there. And that line meant a lot to Bob Dylan that Frank, who he worshipped when he was younger, kind of recognized him. How many of his songs have you heard? Dylan's? Yeah. Oh, every single one. Every single oh, Dylan song. I've heard it, heard it over and over and over again. So you own Obsessively. it? Obsessively, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's how a many big songs part of my life. Uh, well, I, he's probably has close, you know, I, I probably know by heart 300 of his songs. You know them by mm-hmm. heart. How do you do that? Um, strum guitar and know the, you know, a lot of the songs are just, you know, um, you know, I might forget a lyric or something, but it's just D and A and G and, you know, it's, it's, it, do you, you remember can do a lot the language of, of, I mean, the, the mm-hmm, words mm-hmm. and the <laughs> phrasing, his ability to phrase word, he can draw out a valve or, uh, um, you know, he's just a remarkable artist, and it's not me. I mean, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, recognized around the world for a unique, unique gift of taking American street culture, blues, jazz, um, Tammany, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, um, you know, like um, vaudeville. Um, he could take it all and put it into something that's his own. So in many ways, he could be at times like Robert Rauschenberg, uh, painter where you're taking objects of everyday life and putting them together and uh, he constructs these songs Dylan's songs are built to last Um, there's nothing they're not written for the whim of the moment they'll be around forever based on what you know of his songs give me four or five things that he thinks of America he feels his America isn't here anymore that it it left Um, meaning with the the, the technology uh, factor that he does not care for things like a, um, a Marriott that you can't open the windows. He's of the old school where you can open the windows in America where you're allowed to smoke, you know. Uh, and so I and it used to be a big deal when an album came out, and now all the streaming culture and all. It's just that's not his world. He'll pioneer with it in the sense of selling his body of work here, doing that. But he's a more of an old-time uh, um, traveling person. And, it, it, he, and he's really interested in the 1920s music and 1930s music, Civil War songs. He knows all the songs from the Civil War. I mean, he's a walking kind of jukebox of all of America, American uh, uh, popular song. Carl Sandburg, the poet, was that way, and there's certain people. Are, uh, he, his knowledge of the of the blues is just phenomenal. And he, you know, he used to play with John Lee Hooker and uh, Victoria Spivey and all of these early blues players. He once said to me that he really got the tail end of a black culture that's not there right now. 
um, because he goes around and sees Martin Luther King Boulevard with the Walmart, you know, with the Wendy's and the fast food junctions of America. But he caught the tail end of that heavy black culture of the late 50s and 60s where the, the churches and the black neighborhoods and the black, you know, it was, it was a deep-rooted gospel kind of culture. It still exists, but it's not as pronounced as it used to be. Speaking, um, he loves the South. Speak, Bob loves the okay. South. I'm going to connect this to the South, kind of the South. Speaking of that, when did you have lunch with Chuck Berry? Oh, I've had a lot of meals with Chuck Berry. Uh, so the Chuck Berry is a product. Deceased pro- now at age of Deceased. Yeah. He, um, he was one. So I wrote in this book, The Magic Bus, I had mentioned Chuck Berry as a poet. Now, you weren't supposed to do that. And I actually wrote it in a Wall Street Journal article um, about St. Louis, about T.S. Eliot, the great poet. But Chuck Berry is also a poet. Uh, it was just a little throwaway cultural piece, nothing that uh, spectacular, except uh, Joe Edwards read it, and, uh, and he ran, runs a restaurant called Blueberry Hill um, near Washington University, and he showed it to Chuck Berry, and Chuck thought my description of him was really spot on. He's from St. Louis. He lived yeah. in St. Louis there. And then Chuck Berry loved the magic bus because he said, I would have stayed in school if somebody would have let me get out of the prison-like schoolroom and actually go and see and do things. So he just took to the concept. And uh, I got out of nowhere. I always remember the day in my mailbox came a package, uh, and he sent me his autobiography and a guitar pick. And a note that said, if you ever come to St. Louis with your magic bus, a dinner on Chuck Berry. So we went through St. Louis, and I got Joe Edwards, the guy who set this up. And uh, we met at Blueberry Hill, and Chuck and his wife and um, daughter Ingrid. Uh, we all had a meal. We had a great time. And then we would go, went down into the basement and we played music with him. He played guitar. One of my students played drums a little, and he was had our, our driver sing, and he set my class up as a band while he played, and we had a blast. And Ingrid, was, his daughter's beautiful and has this incredible voice and personality. And so then it just became a mainstay. And not only that, I w- um, the, um, you know, the, um, I would come back to St. Louis, and we'd have dinner quite a bit and Joe Edwards and I would go out with Chuck and and so I found out that Brian there were two people that there's Charles Berry and Chuck <laughs> and that I was getting Charles who was this unbelievable gentleman and Chuck was the one who would yell at you didn't pay me I want my money in a you know you know and I was getting this sort of um, fatherly gentleman a really remarkably um, kind and, you know, he called me professor, and we would talk and talk about things, and he was very smart. Uh, he, didn't have, he didn't have college, though. No, he, but he had that kind of feral, like, he'd say things that would make your you know, hair stand up because he, he could see what was around him. And um, I went then, one day we, I went, and he invited me to his recording studio, and we ate at Wendy's. He'd wear a, a sailor's cap, and we were at Wendy's. And so I sat in while he recorded all the songs and mixed them of his last album. He only had one engineer, and he would play the instruments. And, and, and I watched him record some of these um, songs. This little studio like this, we hung out 
uh, two days while he was doing it in St. Louis. He was recording it. Was this his last album, Chuck? Yeah. And, called Chuck. And I wrote the liner notes to Chuck. He called me before he released it and just asked if I, we, we got a thing, if I would do them, and I said, yeah. What did you think of the song, Darlin'? I like it. I like the whole last album. It didn't <clears throat> take, see, that's where I think something's gone. I like I like the album, Chuck. Uh, uh, he has a song, Big Boys, uh, on it that's really great. The guitar's great didn't make much of a dent in our culture. It's like from a different era. He's like a relic. But I thought the CD was tremendous. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sad that he passed, but I, I like that he stayed in uh, St. Louis, and he was a Cardinals fanatic, baseball fanatic. And Joe Edwards helped him build a statue or get a statue. It's a beautiful statue of Chuck Berry now in St. Louis. Um, and the city's honored him really well. They play his songs at ball games, and uh, they were very proud that he never left. A lot of stars leave. Chuck stayed. He's, you know, that's home, and he stayed his whole life there. How was he able to pull off showing up in a city without a band and go with a local group? Yeah. How and, did it, how did he do that? Uh, hubris. You know, he was, I'm, I'm, you know, Chuck, do you, everybody knows Chuck Berry's songs, plug it in, go. It was, you know, young people would get all nervous because he's like, let's go tune it, you know, and in and out, pay me, performance, go, pay, performance, go. Um, part pay, of it, pay in advance? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he did not trust, um, you know, he had a lot of run-ins with the IRS and all, like some of those, like Willie Nelson and others, and so... Uh, he liked his cash up front, um, and you know he would um, he'd perform all over the place. But he was a remarkable American figure, and I've been pleased to see him being noticed in his sorts of art museums and things. Uh, I recently saw a display of him. I mean, Chuck Berry was this really a standard of what rock as a cultural phenomenon was. Who Great artist. Who followed him? In other words, who? Who found him to be kind of the father of anything, you know? Oh, Chess Records up in Chicago started noticing it, and but but then his records got hot in England, and so obviously the Beatles started, were Chuck Berry fanatics, and the Rolling Stones they were really just ripping off Chuck Berry songs. Chuck uh, and Jimmy Johnson, who's um, um, you know those guys were the you know the the um, you know they were the but they gave birth to rock and roll as an art form, not as a pop, uh, you know, um, it, 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 it's serious guitar playing. And to be able to carry the guitar, tune it, play electric guitar like he does while singing, you know, was quite remarkable. I've seen a lot of performers. He was as good as any performer. Uh, and you always felt he was sometimes only giving you half his game. But uh, when he wanted to be, he could be, you know, in that world. I mean, he was the great. And in fact, I talked to um, Bob Dylan about him and that talk about, uh, Bob said, yeah, there's, there's two people that matter, Chuck Berry and myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bob loved Chuck Berry. And of course, Little Richard, who's gone and back then. And I asked Dylan, so I did the new, Bob wouldn't do a major interview once he got the Nobel Prize. And he wouldn't do it. And, and uh, and I did the New York Times. I did the big interview of him for the New York Times, uh, the first one after he won the Nobel. 
except for being on his own website. But for the for an outsider writing, and I interviewed him a lot. The Times only ran part of that particular interview. But Little Richard had just died, so we talked quite a bit about Little Richard. What other music person have you met that you always remember? Well, those are the two big ones. Um, you know, when I was young, I met Dizzy Gillespie and I, when I did the uh, semester in Europe, and I went to a um, jazz, Rodney Scott's a jazz club, and I got there very early, and uh, somebody let me in beforehand, and sitting in a back area by himself was Dizzy Gillespie, and I got to talk to Dizzy Gillespie for a while, and that was a real treat. He was so nice to me, too. I'm friends with Wynton Marsalis. Um, of um, jazz at Lincoln Center, good friends with Winton. Um, we have a mutual couple of mutual friends, um, and we we talk a fair amount. Winton and I were grappling with writing a book together on somebody you interviewed, Albert Murray, African American writer, um, former Air Force guy. Yeah, we we're going to do a book <clears throat> called um, Blues America, but we keep back burnering it, but. You know, Winton, what he's done at Jazz at Lincoln Center is just phenomenal. To give New York a premier jazz showcase of the talent that comes through there of young jazz players, you know, getting to know Winton uh, would be high on my list. I mean, I deal with different, um, I'm friends with a guy in Austin named Tom Russell, no reason, who's a, a folk singer and writes songs, and I really think he's underrated. And it's not just me. Um, um, Toppin, who wrote half of Ellen John's songs, called him recently the most underappreciated American singer-songwriter. Uh, and so, you know, I get to know, I like musicians. I like talking to them and um, knowing them. A guy named Joe Ely, who's a, a friend of mine in, uh, uh, down in Austin, and, and there are many others. I knew Jerry Jeff Walker lived just down the road from me, and he just passed. Um, I know Don Henley pretty well of the Eagles. Uh, we did an event for him up at Walden's Pond with Thoreau, with um, David McCullough and Ken Burns. And Henley is trying to save Cato Lake in Texas on the Louisiana border. This is near Carmack where um, Lady Bird Johnson was from. But it looks like Louisiana, but it's in Texas. Beautiful bayou, stunning cypress trees. And he works very hard to preserve that lake. He has his home there in this isolated part of the world. Uh, and so I admire him for that. He picks one area that he loves, and he tries to do something to protect it. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.